1: Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, Well, our main prerogative is to always give you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're available on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. My name is Samora Mangesi, and with me in studio, making sure that you stay informed with all things Africa, is Jwana Nituulo, Tracy Boomgaard, and Neto Chimani top stories on africa digest at this hour thousands of demonstrators continue to arrive at sudan's army headquarters in khartoum fake news risks are worsening ethnic and religious tensions in nigeria doctors without borders or msf has warned as welcomed the recent news that a much-needed drug-resistant tb medicine called Delaminid, Delaminid has been registered for use in the country by the south african health products regulatory authority In economic news, the Zimbabwean government honored its pledge to increase the salaries of civil servants by 29%. Right now, let's cross on over to the news desk. Here is Joellen Tulo with your news bulletin.
2: Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. Sudanese protesters are continuing to demand that the Transitional Military Council running the country hands over to a civilian administration. On Monday, the African Union called on Sudan's military to transfer power to a civilian-led political authority or face suspension from the AU. The military overthrow of President Omar Bashir last Thursday follows months of protests. The BBC's Will Ross has
3: the story. The Transitional Military councils not yet responded to the African Union's call for Lieutenant General Abdul Fattah Al-Buran and his nine colleagues to return the country to civilian rule within 15 days. For many senior military men the threat of Sudan's suspension from the AU is not their biggest worry right now. Some will be terrified that one day they could be held to account for the numerous atrocities committed against Sudanese civilians over the years. After former President Omar al-Bashir's tyrannical three-decade rule, protesters are reluctant to trust the military to fulfill any promises. That's why they want a total change of leadership with civilians in charge.
2: Algeria's chief says the army chief, rather, says the military is looking at all options to find a solution to end the country's political crisis as soon as possible. In a speech read out on state television, Chayid Salah said time was running out and Algeria could not afford further delays. Salah added that more steps would be taken to meet the protesters' demands. Meanwhile, the head of the country's constitutional council, Taib Balayes, has stepped down after weeks of facing protests. Algerians have called for and other top figures to quit in mass demonstrations which prompted the departure of veteran president Abdelaziz Bouteflika this month. South Africa's independent communications authority, ICASA, says it has taken into account all the principles that govern the allocation of slots for political parties, rather for p- party election broadcasts, PEBs, to ensure fair and equitable treatment in all the broadcasting services. Currently, broadcasters are expected to flight to party election broadcasts and political advertisements for all parties, contesting the May 8 elections. ECASA has allocated political party free slots to flight PEBs on different broadcast platforms. The public broadcaster, the SABC, is compelled by law to flight these PEBs free of charge. ECASA spokesperson, Bassa Malika says the allocation of slots is within the law
1: there's three principles that we use when we allocate party election broadcasts one of them is the basic allocation this is the allocation for all political parties that are registered and contesting the elections the second principle that we use is whether the party has has certain seats or the number of seats that the party holds within the National Assembly. And then the last principle is basically related to the number of candidates that a political party is fielding. That is both provincially and nationally. We have taken into account all those three principles to allocate political parties to the PEBs. And we believe that we have done enough as the authority to ensure that we give all the political parties that are contesting the elections fair and equitable treatment within the broadcasting services that we have.
2: No first-year students have been admitted for around 100 degree courses offered at at least 40 universities in Kenya for the 2019 academic year. Education officials say the jobs of hundreds of lecturers of the unpopular courses are now at stake ahead of the start of the academic year in September. Kenya's universities and colleges placement service says potential student applications were either rejected or no one applied. Some of those courses include Bachelor of Arts in Peace and Conflict Studies, Bachelor of theology bachelor of business administration and bachelor of science agribusiness and finally french authorities say the fire at the notre dame cathedral was an accident and not arson that speculation uh, their speculation rather that it may be linked to a project to restore the 19th century cathedral the bbc's hugh Schofield has the story
4: There was a a real fear that we had lost this building. This morning we wake up and uh, happily there is a new mood. The cathedral is still there. The damage is terrible. It was devastating. But the main part of the building, the Gothic gem, which is Notre Dame Cathedral, has survived.
2: Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Cholani Tulo.
0: This is Africa Digest.
1: Thousands of demonstrators continue to arrive at Sudan's army headquarters in Khartoum to join others that have packed the palace. The place since President Omar al-Bashir was toppled more than a week ago. James
5: Shimanyula reports. Songs, dance, ululation rent the air outside Sudan's military headquarters where thousands of demonstrators have camped since the overthrow of President Omar Hassan al-Bashir. The demonstrators gathered at the military headquarters are pushing for the setting up of a civilian government and not a military outfit that they say will be a replica of el bashir's administration this woman who did not want to be identified for her own safety is of the view that military men are not likely to hand over power to the new civilian rulers she says toppled president el bashir promised to hand over power to civilians but failed to do so after thirty-three years. Now these military men, she says, want to seize people's power. We shall not allow them to do so, he says. Ahmed Abdel Osman speaking in Arabic says, ordinary citizens of Sudan brought down military rulers who have ruled the country under the pretext that they are civilian
6: rulers.
5: This time of the coup, ordinary citizens of Sudan will not allow military men to snatch civilian power again. Halima Sakina, one of Sudan's prominent activists, has made the following remarks. Now that El-Bashir is no longer in power, I believe that change will come. I just hope that the change is in sight, and Bashir's men should be tried by the International Criminal Court of Justice. (laughs) One of the women leaders, Asha Mohamed Ahmed, asserts that the demonstrators' demands still stand.
7: Our main demand is: we want to transfer the power to civilian transitional government, then to arrest all people committed. Crimes and injustice action against uh, Sudanese people. We continue our protesting in the sitting. Our goals and demands are very clear, you know, from the beginning to bring this regime down. So bringing down the whole regime, transfer our power to a transitional civilian government.
5: As the situation remains unpredictable in Sudan, the people of neighboring nation of South Sudan have made varying views here are their voices in arabic with my translation
8: we would
5: like to see stability and development in sudan we want peace to come from an environment of peace to enable the people there Get education, health, and live well than they have been living. The change that has come is the best because Al Bashir has ruled Sudan for
9: many years. The
5: people of Sudan are simple. Their demands are also simple.
10: ما يستعجلوا وتريسو حتى إنه يلقوا حتى إنه يشوفوا الناس تجوعت تشوف الناس المتعلمة. زول حكومنا زول متعلم فاهم عارف الحاص شنو عارف الدول الجنبنا دارش شنو تتعامل تنفتح عن الدول دي.
5: They just want to drink and eat, and that is all they
10: need.
5: People of Sudan should not be
10: in a hurry.
5: They should take time to look for proper leaders, leaders with
10: knowledge
5: and include them in the new government to be formed in Sudan. Those were voices of South Sudan citizens on the latest developments in Khartoum, Sudan. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story.
11: Kulituanjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa
3: in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you
6: the whole picture every time. George Mohango, Channel Africa, Blantaya.
4: Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaounde.
8: From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. This
0: is Africa Digest.
1: Italy's Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte says a foreign military intervention in Libya will not help the country's ongoing crisis, adding that it could trigger a migration wave from the country to southern Europe. The North African country and former Italian colony is undergoing a crisis after General Khalifa Haftar, leader of a parallel government in the eastern city of Tobruk, launched an offensive uh, offence to seize the city of Tripoli, home of a unity government led by Prime Minister Fayez al-Sarraj. The offensive has so far displaced at least 4,500 residents and left more than 100 people dead. Libya has been split between two capitals since the France-led NATO Intervention in 2011 that led to the death of longtime leader Muammar Gaddafi. To discuss this further with us, we are joined on the line by Francesco Gallietti, head of political risk consult- consultancy group Policy Sona in Rome, Italy. Uh, Francesco, thank you very much for joining us.
12: Thank you for hosting me.
1: Now, you have been highly critical of Italy's position in the Libyan situation, which has changed constantly over the years. Do you agree with Italy's Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte that foreign military intervention in Libya will not help the country's ongoing crisis?
12: Certainly, the country is now trying to hedge in Italy's position. Italy traditionally has flirted with anyone in the wider Mediterranean that has been part of our DNA and our mission, and especially in a a highly complex arena like the broader Mediterranean, uh, where now we are facing a proxy war between at least two blocks, uh, the Qatari one and uh, the Saudi one, all of this obviously happening not far away from our own shores. So Conte's storyline is that we should speak to the UN-backed uh, government uh, and in any way stick to a UN official uh, procedure process uh, and so to forward instead of opting for chaos. Whether we will uh, succeed is uh, doubtful. Also, because Haftar is making progress with speed, but certainly Italy finds itself in very tight straits these
1: days. Are peace talks between the two sides possible at the moment, in light of the current instability?
12: Um, I couldn't quite hear that. Can you please?
1: So basically, Francesco, I was asking if uh, peace talks between the two sides are possible at the moment, in light of the current instability.
12: Uh, I doubt it, because we, we,
7: for
12: for someone who has the will, skill, and ability to rein in Haftar, uh, which at this stage, uh, with Haftar literally on the outskirts of Tripoli, seems very difficult. Um, but what we also want to avoid at all costs uh, is that there is a spillover effect uh, to neighboring countries, i.e. Uh, to Algeria. Uh, or possibly Tunisia or even Morocco um, because that would would wreak havoc in, in our near abroad
1: Now the general behind the attack um, Khalifa Hafta has the support of countries such as Egypt, United Arab Emirates, and France Does this complicate the situation even further?
12: Um, yes and no Uh, Haftar has many sponsors, uh, some of which happen to be very good friends of Italy. Um, And in fact, one of uh, uh, the the elements uh, in in the story that uh, uh, is intriguing is that Italy cultivated a very strong ties to Egypt, for instance, to Al-Sisi, and to Russia. And by doing so, it probably uh, thought uh, that... uh, it was hedging itself against being seen as, as being perceived as overly pro-Saraji. Turns the um, uh, proximity to uh, Sisi or to Russia is not enough, as not in Haftar's own experience.
1: And what can the United Nations, through its envoy, uh, Hassan Salame, do at this point to try and broker peace?
12: I'm not sure that anyone can broker a peace now, uh, considering the situation. Uh, I I would see, however, that uh, um, a flurry of meetings are taking place at the highest levels. Uh, as we speak, the Maio is in the United Arab Emirates, uh, meetings have been held with uh, uh, the Qataris uh, and with Russia. Russia's took their position in particular is uh, um, open, um, open to, uh, I mean, it, it, it is interesting because uh, Russia has played uh, uh, a fundamental role in Syria uh, where it has positioned itself as a broker in the in region situation. Of course, Libya is not Syria, uh, but Russia seems once again uh, entering into that brokerage mode. So uh, let's see see what Russia is up to. All
1: right, and uh, Italian newspapers have reported that about 6,000 people might try to flee the fighting and that human traffickers are also trying to take advantage of the chaos. What impact will the fighting have on migration?
12: It's um, been massive, and um, because of course, uh, uh, in terms of domestic policy, uh, there the, there is a sense of deep insecurity that derives from uh, the flow of economic migrants that has uh, uh, that we have witnessed over the past two three years, um, and uh, in particular, the League uh, and its leader Matteo Salvini, who also is the Minister of Interior, uh, has. Uh, cash in political from uh, uh, the fight against uh, economic migrants. Uh, but it's one thing to wield an iron fist against economic migrants, uh, and it's a totally different thing uh, to wield an iron fist against people who are fleeing uh, from a civil war. Um, in, in the former case, uh, you are dealing with non-Libyans. Uh, uh, for which it is mainly a logistical springboard. In the latter case, you are speaking of Libyans who are fleeing and abandoning their own country uh, and escaping a civil war. Uh, so, as you can see, this will change the equation quite practically.
1: All right. Well, uh, Francesco, thank you very much for, to- for talking to us.
12: Uh, you're very welcome. Have a nice evening.
1: You too. That was Francesco Gallietti, the head of political risk consultancy Policy Sona on the line from Rome in Italy. But the time is now 17.20 Central African time. You are still listening to Africa Digest with myself, Samora Mangesi.
8: This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective.
11: Guess
2: what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French, and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalun and you are listening to Channel Africa. We love Channel Africa from an African perspective.
1: Channel Africa bringing you the African perspective. Fake news, risks are worsening ethnic and religious tensions in Nigeria at a time of heightened concern about internal security and fragile community relations. This according to a fact-checking organization, Africa Check. It comes after a slew of false claims about politicians and their parties considered to have been part of a deliberate attempt to shape the narrative before recent polls. Africa's most populous nation is often characterized as a country teetering uh, on the brink in light of persistent security threats posed by Boko Haram terrorists in the northeast and uh, violence between nomadic cattle herders and farmers in central states. Africa Czech Nigeria editor David Ajikobi says government needs to assert its authority to contain the problem, which he says has spiraled out of control
10: it's a big problem. Let me give you some context. So imagine a country like Nigeria with um, a population estimated about 190 million, 200 million. You have um, hundreds of ethnic groups, hundreds, I mean, different, multi-religious, multi-ethnic, you know, multi-tribal. And then there are all of these tensions, you know, inter-tribal tensions, you know, here and there. And then you have the ecosystem of misinformation and disinformation. Also in that space, essentially what you get is a recipe for disaster. And we you can see um, examples, very, very um, um, clear examples, like the killings in Kaduna, the killings in Zamfara, the killings in uh, the Fulani headsmen um, narrative and things like that. All of those crises have been fought by one form of disinformation or misinformation or the other. Because usually what happens, you know, is an attack somewhere and uh, they, they pin it on one ethnic group or an ethnic group and, you know, it circulates and there are reprisal attacks and, you know, before you know it, it turns into a full-scale uh, uh, clash. Uh, from that, for, even for the democratic process, um, disinformation and misinformation, particularly fake news, was a big problem was in, the, in the last elections. And it affected the integrity of, of the last elections. I mean, South Africans are going, to ele- are going to vote very soon. And we saw that in Nigeria, for example, fake election results were being propagated. For example, the person or the, the politician who lost the presidential election, Atiku Abubakar, is being branded as saying that he's carrying around fake election results. So all of those things, you know, fake news, disinformation and misinformation in a country like Nigeria has real-life consequences, it's not just some something on social media. It has real-life consequences.
5: Now, would you say this uh, misinformation practice uh, is deliberate, uh,
1: David, or not intentional? Does one wake up in the morning and say today i'm going to manufacture fake news
10: i think in a nigerian context it's a, it's a mix of both uh we've seen some very clear-cut deliberate um um, um uh, uh, uh disinformation we've seen people actually let me like, if i were to use the last election for example we've seen people actually sit in their rooms and just you know just punch out election results and they and circulate it. We've seen some deliberate ones. And we've seen some where people, you know, did not deliberately uh, um, circulate these things. So, for example, look at the WhatsApp, WhatsApp platforms, the WhatsApp groups and things like that, where people post things and, you know, some people forward it to their family members. They might not know if it's false or not. You know, yeah, that happens. But generally, uh, we've seen a mixture of both. But in some cases for 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 the crisis, the protests, and some of the ones that had the real-life consequences, some of them have been deliberately fabricated. Information.
1: And that was David Adjikobi, Africa Czech editor in Nigeria, on the line from the capital, Abuja, talking to Kumbelo Munzelele. The president of the African Development Bank has called on the United States to up its investment game in Africa as he made the case for the world's largest economy to look beyond traditional sectors on the continent. Akinwumi Adesina was speaking in New York at an event that brought together investors and business practitioners for a roundtable discussion titled A New Economic Vision for Africa. He called for Africa to be looked at through the different lens while making the case for agriculture on the continent to be seen as a mega sector for the future. He also addressed the low growth trap currently being experienced in both South Africa and Nigeria. Show and Bryce Peace.
3: Akinwumi Adesina told his audience that Africa should no longer be seen as a museum of poverty, rather a continent that will be driving global growth going forward. If you're looking
4: for where to be, that's the place to be. Because of the population, because of the rising consumer demand, and just because of the sheer size of what the African economy will look like with the continental free trade area that brings together economies worth $3.3 trillion. Who wouldn't be excited about that?
3: two-way trade between Africa and the United States stood at $39 billion in 2017. Between Africa and China, that number rises to a whopping $204 billion in 2018, with calls for a rethink in the world's largest economy.
4: I would like you know, everyone to look at Africa with a different lens, you know, different lenses not from the lenses of development. Africa, of course, like every part of the world, still needs to have a lot of development challenges. But when I look at what we have, 65% of all the agricultural land, arable land left to feed 9 billion people in the world by 2030 of 2050, it's not in United States, it's not in Europe, it's not in Latin America or Asia, it's in Africa. What Africa does without agriculture is going to determine the future of food right in the world and so the key is to look at Africa as a place as an investment destination not necessarily as a development destination
3: he explained that there was a lot of scope for investment in regional connectivity infrastructure development particularly to give support to the African continental free trade area in ICT and international services but it's agriculture that he argues should be a powerhouse sector throughout the continent. The bank itself has invested twenty-four billion dollars over ten years in business-minded agriculture development.
4: Africa is not tapping its agriculture at all. I don't think it is. Um, you know, if you take a look at Netherlands, what does Netherlands have? Netherlands has agriculture. Look at them; they're global powerhouse in the world. You know, when it comes to agriculture, for far too long, we've been looking at agriculture as a way of life. We all came from rural areas. We look at it as some kind of development social sector. I'm sorry, it's not. Agriculture is a business. By the year 2030 on the continent, the size of the food and agricultural business is going to be worth a whopping $1 trillion. So if we're going to take people, millions of them out of poverty, we've got to turn agriculture into a mega sector that works for everybody.
3: He called Nigeria and South Africa two critical powerhouses on the continent that have lagged in growth due to structural and other impediments that need reliable and stable electricity as a basis to grow. With the bank a major investor in ESCOM, we asked President Adesina about its unbundling.
4: It's a common decision. I can only speak from the perspective of lessons from other parts of the world. I think parts of the world also shows that monopolies are not efficient. You know, monopolies also cost a lot of money. It's difficult politically, obviously, because of the issues that have to be done, but I think what the government is doing is the right thing. In you know, unbundling the power generation, the power transmission, and the power distribution. You get more efficient individual entities. At the end of the day, when it looks to tariffs that have to, you know, people talk about, you know, whether tariffs will go up. Sometimes a higher tariffs is simply an indication of transfer of inefficiency costs on customers.
3: He expressed confidence in the changes underway at the utility and for leadership of the country to pull a Tiger Woods-type turnaround moving
1: forward. I'm Sherman Bryce Pease in New York. The time is now 17.30 Central African time. Let's cross on over to the news desk where Zwalani is standing by to give you your latest news headlines.
2: Thank you, Samora, making headlines. Algeria's army chief says the military is looking at all options to find a solution to end the country's political crisis as soon as possible. Sudanese protesters are continuing to demand the transitional military council running the country hands over to a civilian administration. And finally, South Africa's Independent Communications Authority, CASA, says it has taken into account all the principles that govern the allocation of slots for party election broadcasts, to ensure fair and equitable treatment in all the broadcasting services. For Channel Africa, I'm Cholani Tulo.
5: I, Nelson Hollitha Mandela, do hereby sir, to be faithful to the Republic of South Africa. He was not a ruler,
2: like just telling people what to do. He didn't rule us, he let us.
5: His
8: role as president in the process of nation building was exemplary and wonderful. You could disagree with him, he would disagree with you, you could even be quite testy with each other, and yet it wouldn't affect the overall relationship of your own cooperation or friendship. Nelson Mandela, a giant of
5: two centuries.
0: This is Africa Digest.
1: The emergence of insurgency and armed groups in northeast Nigeria has left scores of homes deserted and a whole lot of communities devastated due to the horror caused by insurgent groups like Boko Haram, which added the kidnapping of innocent schoolgirls to its agenda. One such case was the abduction of 276 schoolgirls from Chibok, a community in Borno State, which has been the epic center of the battle to save Nigeria from the terror group for about a decade now. Of the number of girls kidnapped, 112 remain in captivity, while others were rescued by government forces, and a few escaped unaided. Channel Africa correspondent in Lagos, Collins Nosa Atohengbe, reports that some concerned mothers staged a procession in Lagos to drum home a message that government should hasten the release of those still in the custody of the terrorists.
6: Evidently, that's not a pleasant music to the ear. It is a voice of concerned mothers who could not stay quiet in the face of the emotional trauma of the parents and family members of kidnapped schoolgirls from Chibok and Leah Sheribu, the only people still in captivity among the 110 schoolgirls that were abducted from Dachi about two years ago. Despite government's promises to have the girls released and alive, there seems to be no tangible efforts on the part of the authorities to secure the girls and to stem the incessant kidnapping and wanton killings of Nigerians across the land. So far, there have been two outcries by way of protest by aggrieved persons, some of who lost parents, children, and relatives to kidnappers, or were forced to sell their belongings for ransom demands to secure their freedom of their concerns from terror groups. The protest in Lagos and other major cities was in commemoration 50 of the fifth year of Chibo girls in captivity, while according to a social activist Yemi Ademolekun government has become so lackadaisical about the security of the citizens.
13: We use the Chibok girls as a reminder that many more Nigerians are missing, they've been kidnapped, they've been killed, but we don't know their names. Um, So we use the Chibok girls, that we know their names, their pictures, their parents, to remind Nigerians that there is an insecurity problem and the government is not doing enough to secure Nigerians.
6: In the eyes of Jonathan or Lawale, a member of the Bring Back Our Girls campaign group, five years is too long to wait for the rescue of abducted schoolgirls, despite endless promises by government that they would be released.
4: We are not happy that uh, at five years, we still have 112 of our girls uh, in the hands of the Boko Haram. We are not happy, and we think our government can
6: do more than this. A parent of one of the girls that was among the 84 who were rescued by government over a year ago, Yalu Boata, says, Now that elections are over, government should return to the job of search and rescue of the remaining 112 abducted girls. If I can imagine how my mood was then, before my uh, daughter's release, it's just unfortunate that some of us, the parents, are late because of the trauma, heart attack and all those uh, blood pressure because of the uh, abducted girls. Five years is too long. Five years anniversary. I'm not praying. To mark the sixth year. I'm appealing to government. The election is over. They are now there. They should go back and bring the remaining 1 and 12 girls and Leah Sharibu from Dabchi. Taking a swipe at government's lukewarm attitude over security and lack of communications, Yemi Adomalekun says priority attention should be given to communication with families of the abducted girls to reduce their stress and anxiety.
13: The problem is a seeming lack that Nigerian lives don't matter. Um, I think that's at the heart of it, because not only are people getting kidnapped or missing, it's also how you respond to it. It took a protest a few days ago about Zamfara to get the president to respond in Dubai that he's concerned about Nigerians and it makes him unhappy. Now, when people in Zamfara are not dying before he left, so did citizens have to come out before he said that, and that seems to be the pattern. Something happens, they don't say anything, there's a protest, international media or local media carry it, and then they respond. And what that cycle tells us is that they don't really care, and they have to be constantly reminded that there's a problem. Find the 112 girls, or tell us where they are and what you are doing about it. There has not been any communication this year about the Chiba girls, except for some line during a campaign that we are still committed to finding them. What does that really mean? and we've asked several times around what is the process what are you doing even if it's communicate with the family why is there not a system that every month you call the family and say we're still looking for your daughters we have not forgotten the call is max five minutes i mean that's not too much to ask for nigerian citizens
6: of the numerous suggestions aimed at reaching a comfortable zone in national security and geometric progression in related matters one that stands out with ear popping call is the one by a member of the Bring Back Our uh, Girls group, Aisha Yusufu. She says President Buhari, who doubles as petroleum minister, to sack himself from office.
13: First of all, the president needs to sack himself. The second of all, he will sack the minister of petroleum If we really want things to, to go, because really, there hasn't been any government in uh, almost four years. Nigeria has just been there and just things are just going on absolutely not the way it should. For example, even if we look at the minister of defense, where is he from? His state? Sure, he can't go to his state without, of course, putting in that extra security. People are being killed every
3: day.
6: People, indeed, are being killed daily at different areas, while kidnapping seems to be on the increase. That was what sparked the Abuja protest last week, in which Zamfara state's indigents cried out for rescue from terrorists. For now, it has been discovered that illegal mining contributed immensely to the situation in Northwest. but the reason for adoption of schoolgirls had remained elusive, except it is being seen as avenue to get innocent girls to massage the ego of terrorists the question is when will nigeria enjoy peace once more from lagos nigeria i am collins nosa atohengui for channel africa news
1: south africa's minister of uh, arts and culture natim tetwa alongside african artists has planned a benefit concert to help survivors of cyclone die which devastated parts of mozambique zimbabwe and malawi during the briefing in Pretoria, Mtetwa called on corporations, charities and individuals to continue with the spirit of Ubuntu towards the cyclone-hit nations. This week marks a month since the powerful tropical storm ravaged the three southern African nations. Jane Rabutata reports.
11: The South African government calls on its people to continue making donations towards humanitarian aid for the people of Mozambique, Malawi and Zimbabwe who were affected by cyclone Idai. According to Arts and Culture Minister Natim Tertwa, artists are working towards a benefit concert targeted for May 18 as a daytime family concert to take place at Bears Valley Park in Johannesburg with proceeds going to a fund to assist cyclone victims. Minister Mteatwa was speaking at a media briefing in Pretoria this morning which was attended by prominent African artists which include Yvonne Chakachaka and Ledambulu. The three countries' embassies will be visited and will be followed by an aid tour with artists and media where those involved in the project will get to lend a hand on the ground. Cyclone Idai had a devastating impact on people living in several areas of Mozambique with Beira City the most affected. Neighboring Malawi and Zimbabwe were also affected by the tropical storm which has left thousands of people homeless. According to the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, OCHA, The cyclone has claimed 603 lives and left 1.8 million people in need of humanitarian assistance. The hardest-hit country, Mozambique, is now battling an outbreak of the waterborne disease cholera, with cases reaching 5,000. A six-day emergency cholera vaccination campaign was concluded last week. It reached more than 8,000 people in the country's four districts affected by the cyclone. However, aid agencies say although floodwaters have largely receded across the three countries and some affected families have started to return home, thousands remain in evacuation camps because their houses were damaged or destroyed. Food security is also a major issue because the storm destroyed crops weeks before the harvest. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Rabotata in Johannesburg.
1: Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, has welcomed the recent news that uh, a much-needed drug-resistant TB medicine called Delaminid has been registered for use in the country by the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority. The International Medical Humanitarian Agency is now calling on the National Department of Health to speedily activate existing plans to make the drug routinely available within the public health system for those who need it. More from Dr. Laura Trevino-Duran, a medical coordinator for MSF.
7: Well, TV remains, you know, one of the top and death causes in the country, but also around the whole world. So it's basically like one of the major concerns uh, for South Africa, definitely. And it has been for many years now.
14: How should the Department of Health go about ensuring that uh, DELAMANID is routinely available within the public health system?
7: I think uh, South Africa uh, has one of the best programs in the world related to tuberculosis, and they have been doing exceptional efforts to, you know, to make sure that the drug is available. So now, as it has been registered, as you mentioned previously, uh, on the 29th of March, this is very recently, the government is really doing big efforts to secure the funds to be able to get the drug, and that is being in process. They are in the planning phase, and they are you know, speeding it up. But ourselves, that we are in the ground, we realise how important it is not to delay it further, as you know, currently one on two patients that currently don't get an effective treatment, and having it available for clinicians will make a big change.
14: Now, Dr. Duran, how do you expect the drug to transform the way a drug-resistant TB is treated in the country?
7: So basically, the laminate plays a major role because, for instance, in children less than six years old that are not able to receive the the dacolin, that is another drug that is as well registered in South Africa for now since 2014. In those cases, the patient will benefit enormously from having the laminate, patients with extensive resistant tuberculosis that also will benefit a lot, and patients with serious side effects of other drugs that don't have any other option. These are the three cases whereby the laminate will make a huge uh, you know, benefit for them.
14: Now, with regards to accessibility to this new drug, what are the challenges?
7: So basically, uh, since, you know, since very recently, it hasn't been registered. So the only way to access the laminate in South Africa was through compassionate use or through by the DCAP that is the Laminate Clinical Access Program that was established in March 2017. And that was together with Otsuka, the company that produced the drug, where they donated around 400 courses. But that only happened in five locations within the country. Therefore, very few clients had access to the drug. And indeed, it was not easy. The criteria and the process was very cumbersome, so clinicians were not so keen on going through that process. So there have been very few patients that had access to the laminate so far, and a lot of them have been, well, thanks to MSF as well, in the sense that we did provide the laminate for those patients where DCAP couldn't do it, but that was a very small proportion. So that's one of the big challenges, aside of the price as well. The price is very expensive. It's like around $1,700 US per course, and that's going to become an issue. One thing is access to the drugs to have it available in the ground and another one is for the government to pay for it because it's very expensive.
14: Now, you've mentioned a few of the challenges and barriers to entry or access to this new drug. What role is MSF playing in supporting access to the new drugs in order to strengthen the drug-resistant TB treatment?
7: So basically, MSF you know, introduced the drug in 2015 already through importation through Section 21, therefore ensuring that Patients had access to it, and we could to gain experience, clinical experience on the use of the laminate in a programmatic setting. And we always have given feedback to the use and to the results of the drug that was very positive. Secondly, we are also helping through our access campaign program. We are engaging with the with the MDOH to ensure that we could help them related to the price and you know the tendering process with the drug. So basically, we are putting all our efforts to advocate for access to gather clinical information to reduce price when possible and to ensure that, you know, access to the patient has always been there.
1: And that was Dr. Laura Trevino-Duran, Medical Coordinator for Doctors Without Borders or MSF, talking to Lulu Kibu. Let's cross on over to the money desk where Tracy Boomgaard is standing by to give us your economics news.
0: Thank you, Samora. The Zimbabwean government honoured its pledge to increase the salaries of civil servants by 29%. Nurses, prison officers, members of the Zimbabwe National Army, Zimbabwe Republic police officers and those from the Air Force of Zimbabwe started accessing their salaries on Monday with an increment of up to $129, depending on grades. Those in the education sector will get their dues on Wednesday, while the rest of the civil service and pensioners are going to be paid on April 24th and 26th, respectively. Another salary review is expected mid-year. Employed Kenyans will now have to give 1.5% of their basic salary to the National Housing Development Fund. The Kenyan government ordered employers to start making the deductions at the end of April. Employers are also required to send a figure matching the employee's deductions to the housing fund. The deduction became law by the enactment of the Finance Act 2018 that followed the budget statement presented to Parliament by Treasury Cabinet Secretary Henry Rotish. Meanwhile, Kenyan Airways spends $142 million US annually to service leasing contracts at signed to acquire 20 aircraft. This was revealed in a report submitted to the Transport Committee of the Kenyan Parliament. Servicing loans account for up to 11% of the airline's operating costs. Sigle Zuma reports.
2: Kenya Airways told Parliament that $53 million of the total amount covers aircraft depreciation costs, while $89 million is left for the actual servicing of the leasing costs. Last week, the airline revealed that 11 firms bankrolled the carrier's leasing of the aircraft. This includes the Bank of China Aviation, China Development Bank Leasing, Nordic Aviation Capital, GE Capital Aviation Services, and Aviation Capital Group. It also revealed that it pays $650 million annually to the Kenya Airport Authority for use of the Jomo Kenyatta International Airport as its hub.
0: The United States is interested in developing a 900-megawatt solar project in Zimbabwe. American business LabaCorp Corp. is expected to make presentations in July. The 900-megawatt project is expected to feed electricity onto the national grid once completed. Zimbabwe believes the investors will bring with them a full complement of professionals, including engineers who will be working with technicians in the implementation and subsequent running of the solar plant. With the Easter weekend just around the corner, authorities have urged retailers across South Africa to be on high alert, as criminals are expected to be on the prowl. During this period of the year, South Africa witnesses a significant increase in retail cash crime, including armed robberies, burglaries, and cash and transit heists. Statistics by Cash Connect, a cash management company, shows that there was a 16% increase in retail cash crime leading up to the Easter weekend last year. The U.S. dollar is trading at 358.29 Nigeria Naira, 10.37 Botswana Pula at 100.30 Kenyan Shilling and at 12.37 Zambian kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.87 Brazilian hail, 64.28 Russian ruble, 69.38 Indian rupee, 6.70 Chinese yuan and a 13.98 South African rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and at 88 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,284 and platinum at $886 per ounce, the price of Brent crude oil is $71.95 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard.
1: And right now it's time for us to cross on over to the Sports Desk where Neto Chimani is standing by to give us our latest sports update.
9: Thank you, Samara, from the Sports Desk. A very good afternoon. Starting off with soccer news. Mathematically is still in with a chance to win the league title. South African Premiership side SuperSport United now travel across Pretoria, the country's capital city, to face city rivals Mamelodi Sundowns at the Loftus World Stadium tomorrow night. In Sundowns, United face a side taking the continent by storm, having just returned from Egypt, where they eliminated Egyptian giants Al Ahly from the Caf Champions League quarterfinals 5-1 on aggregate with a the Pirates on top of the standings with a rich 6-point lead. Sundowns sit on second with 44 points from 24 games, while Mazatanza are placed 6th with 40 points after 25 league games, 10 points behind the Pirates. Dembo says he is aware of how much Sundowns desperately needs a win.
5: The two points which we dropped, it's, it's a setback, you know, obviously, because I think this is not the right time to be dropping points. We're going to take it like uh, another game and prepare properly. That's, that's very important. It's one game we will also want to win, and I know they also want to win it, so it's going to be a very interesting game. It's going to be a very inter- entertaining game, a tough game for both teams.
9: Sundowns have utterly dominated the Swan derby in recent years, where they have gone 11 PSL games unbeaten against Supersport. The last time Mazatanza beat the Brazilians in the league game was in 2013 when Mordioff's 88th-minute strike from within his own half secured United the three points. In the UEFA Champions League, Juventus welcome Ajax to Turin tonight with their Champions League quarterfinal tie hanging in the balance. Cristiano Ronaldo playing in his first game since his head-trick against Atletico Madrid in the previous round put the Bion- Biakoneri in control for the first leg with a stunning header. But a fine strike from David Neres ensured things ended at level in Amsterdam with all to play for. The winner of this tie will meet either Liverpool or Porto with Jürgen Club society leading in the tie to nil after the first league. English Premiership side Manchester United manager Ole Gunnar Solskjaer says they can beat Barcelona and reach the Champions League semi-finals if they deserve it.
7: Uh, I believe that you get what you deserve in uh, in sports. That you put your uh, if you put your life and effort and determination, everything you have, you get exactly what you deserve.
9: In athletics, South Africa race walker Wayne Sneiman recently achieved an Olympic and IAAF World Championships qualifying time in Czech Republic. He finished second in a men's 20-kilometer walk with a time of 1 hour 20 minutes 17 seconds, which, also, which is also his personal best. Sneiman went to Rio Olympics in Brazil and finished 58th with a time of 1 hour 29 minutes 20 seconds. He says the authorities will still select a final team for Tokyo
10: everything needs to go through process so well obviously the pre uh selection process for race walking opened on the beginning of this year so um what that pretty much means is i have made a time visible for the suskok and the south african athletic federation visible so they are aware of my time and that i actually have qualified so it doesn't necessarily mean i have originally in the team it means i am let's say provincial team that if if a um, very good chance to get selected. That's, that's pretty much what I can tell you.
9: <laughs> and finally, in tennis news, Africa's number one women's wheelchair tennis player Khutadza Monjani is set to get her Korea Open campaign underway on Wednesday. Monjani, who is seated at number two, will face Sakone Kanto seat from Thailand in their opening match at the Olympic tennis courts in Seoul. She has not been in action since February and she's looking forward to getting back on the court.
2: I think after two months and a half of being out of competition, obviously I'm just happy to be back, you know, I've been working on, you know, a lot of stuff, so it's, it's good to be back in competition looking at, it's going to be, you know, a busy couple of months coming, so I'm, I'm just happy I'm out here to compete again and hopefully things goes my way.
9: Stay tuned to Channel Africa for programming news and sport from an African perspective. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Ito Chemani.
0: This is Africa Digest.
1: And that wraps up the first hour of Africa Digest for today. Be sure to join us again a little bit later on in the evening from 1900 hours Central African time right here on Channel Africa. So from myself, Samora Magesi, producer Tracy Boongard and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. For any comments on the show, be sure to send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp message to plus 27763003327. You can also tweet us at channelafrica1. Taking us to the top of the hour is sometimes a wonder by Kalimba. We'll see you later.